Hi, this is another edition of the War on the Rocks podcast series. We're going to talk about the Middle East tonight. Um, and uh, we have four very interesting, very compelling experts here. Uh, why don't we go around the room and introduce yourselves. Josh, why don't you start? Sure. Uh, Josh Walker. I'm with the German Marshall Fund and the Truman National Security Project. Doug Olivant with the New America Foundation and Manton International. Afshan Ostavar, CNA Strategic Studies. Sonia Chaptai, Washington Institute for Near East Policy. Great. What I like about this group is usually when you're talking about the Middle East, you have a lot of people studying the Arab world in the room. And actually, we only have one that mainly focuses on the Arab world. I know, actually, Afshan's done some work on the Arab Spring stuff, too. But we have two Turkey people, an Iran person, and an Iraq person. So should be interesting. So the big news, obviously, is that the um, House and probably the Senate will follow to support, vote to support uh, funding and training the Syrian rebels. And this is happening, obviously, as a coalition is sort of cohering around the idea to fight the Islamic State uh, in Iraq and Syria. Um, a lot of the focus in the last few days has been on whether or not this administration actually has a strategy, uh, what it is, and what the meaning of boots on the ground is, has been sort of the focus based on General Dempsey's testimony and the aftermath of that. Why don't we start with you, Doug? What do you think the real issues that we should be focusing on? Just getting out of the news cycle a bit. Yeah, getting out of the... None of the issues we're focusing on, to my mind, are particularly interesting. Well, you know, playing gotcha with, you know, alleged um, breaches or gaps or white space between General the Pentagon and the White House, to me, is not very interesting. The definition of boots on the ground is not very interesting. What we do need to be focusing on is, you know, is there a strategy moving forward? You know, what's happening on the Iraq side of the border, which seems to me to be a little... It, on the Iraq side of the border, we have a plan that could work. In the military, we'd say there are only two kinds of plans, plans that won't work and plans that could work. <laughs> no such thing as a plan that will work. So this is a plan that could work on the Iraq side of the border. Uh, on the Syria side, obviously, it's much more ambiguous. And, and uh, I'm sure everyone else can talk about that as well as I can. That's the interesting thing about this is um, you can imagine a best-case scenario actually coming together eventually as far as Iraq is concerned. You can imagine the tri Sunni tribes kicking out ISIS, um, the government becoming more inclusive. It's not going to be perfect ever in Iraq, but you can imagine it getting a lot better than it is now. But it's sort of unimaginable right now in Syria. Do you, anyone think I'm wrong on that? No, I think you're right. I mean, I... I've been thinking about this for a while, the whole idea of who are we supporting in Syria. So we, we don't like Assad, he needs to go, but we don't like any of the other actors there. When when, when ISIS is the bad guy that makes you know, al-Nusra, which is an al-Qaeda offshoot, the good guy, and then we're left with the free Syrian army, which is neither free nor Syrian nor an army. We've got a real problem in this part of the world. And the question, to your or original point, what coalition do we have? And we've got some pretty big players, i.e. Turkey, that are not really playing ball and, and, and kind of supporting. And then you've got a breakdown even in Iraq where you have the KRG and the Kurdish groups uh, doing the main kind of boots on the ground. So we have the Peshmerga and the Kurdish forces and hopefully the Iraqi army, whatever's constituted or left there, along with the American and European Air Force out there, along with our Arab allies. What do you do in Syria? We can agree on Iraq, we can't agree on Syria. So I think you're absolutely right. There is no, there's no best case scenario in Syria right now. I think the level of conflict in Syria far exceeds uh, the level of decentralization in Iraq. So uh, the best case scenario in Syria would probably look like the, a bad case scenario in Iraq right now, where if the different parts of the country are patched together once again, they'd be politically sparring and there'll be some conflict, but at least civil war will be over. So that says a lot that you know we're, we're hoping that uh, Syria's best case scenario will be uh, Iraq's uh, bad scenario. I think that also suggests that to what extent Syria is a mess. 
What's behind Turkey's reticence to get involved in a more forward-leaning way? I actually think that Turkey is against ISIS, a pretty reliable ally, but it has serious serious reservations, and some of these are unfortunately doing off the Turkish leaders themselves. It's got a lot to do with the specific nature of the ISIS threat and how this organization now controls, in my view, a Taliban-style state the size of Portugal across from Turkey's 800-mile-long border with Iraq and Syria. Uh, the Turks never wanted to see ISIS uh, f- um, emerge. Obviously, I think it's unfair to say that Turkish government, um, you know, created this uh, this group or helped its creation. Uh, I think the Turkish uh, policy on Syria from the beginning was aimed at ousting the Assad regime, and the Turks decided that they would take any allies they would get to oust the Assad regime. So, uh, and the premise of the whole Turkish Syria policy was that Assad would fall. Uh, good guys, that's the moderates, would take over. And if a few bad guys went into Syria to fight in the meantime, that was okay, because when the good guys took over, the moderates, uh, they would sweep up the bad guys. Well, three years later, I think that realizing that entire premise is false. And that's probably why Turkish policy is an ill-conceived policy. Assad is not falling. Good guys or the moderates are not taking over. It's the bad guys who are taking over, killing the good guys. And uh, Turkey has a huge problem, the problem of bad guys, i.e. ISIS, across from its 800-mile-long border. And they don't know what to do. I think that one of the reasons is that they have hostages, about 46 of them, in the hands of ISIS. So Turkey is a willing ally to the United States, but also wants to not advertise that too much before, until the moment that it can secure the release of its hostages. Josh, what do you think about that? So while I agree that that Sonar's point on the Turkish government is correct, you know, talking about a country as big as Turkey and a society that's as polarized and as diverse as Turkey is really hard. I mean, when you see all these news reports that are being reported in the West... You know, the, the irony, of course, is because of the hostage situation we talked about, that's what's constantly being used and saying, look, the, the, these, the, these uh, hostages that either range on 49 or 46, depending on if you count the consul general and, and the diplomatic sources or not, um, you know, Turks say, well, we can't do anything because if we do anything, they'll be killed. And right now, ISIS is using the headquarters in Mosul, which is actually the, the Turkish consul- consulate. And so, you know, it makes sense that the Turkish government would be reticent. But at the same time, the very fact that the KRG, uh, the Kurdish uh, authorities in Iraq, are coming out and criticizing Turkey very harshly. You know, it's very, it's, it's very telling that uh, they didn't get out when everybody else did. The governor got out, the Peshmerga came in, the Turkish special forces have been all over northern Iraq. The last time there was an invasion of Iraq by U.S. forces, Turkey was very actively involved in a lot of different areas. And so to see a country as powerful, that's as regionally strong with the military, the capabilities of Turkey, you know, in my mind, it, it does give the West reason for pause and for concern. I don't think that, you know, the one thing is the, US, the, the Turkish government, and it's kind of, you know, going along with what the U.S. government would like to do, but not seeing a longer-term strategy. I do agree that there is a sense of disillusionment in Ankara with, you know, U.S. policy in general here, and they've been saying for so long about what's going on in Syria, and the U.S. has not paid attention. But I think the average Turk today, when you look at the newspapers, when you look at the different things, uh, is, is somewhat more sympathetic than I think we give credit uh, to mm-hmm. them for. That's a good point. Uh, Afshan, Iran's perspective is really interesting on this because there was some talk with some some cooperation with Iran. The foreign minister, I think he's in New York right now, um, read some really interesting interviews with him, heard one on NPR this morning. There was another in the national interest. Uh, he was pretty, um, I would just say, anti the idea of aligning with the U.S., um, sort of overtly said that a lot of this was of America's own making. Uh, what do you, what do you, how does Iran view this situation? Well, Iran... Iran doesn't feel like it can openly side with the U.S. on anything, particularly in Iraq, which it sees as its neighborhood, its business. 
Uh, and it doesn't need the U.S. to come in and save the day. I mean, what Zarif was saying is that Iran, more than anybody else, is what's pushed ISIS back already, and, and Iran will continue to do that work. But, on the same hand, Iran would have liked to have been invited to the show, just so they could say no. Uh-huh. Uh, uh, they still want to be included. They want to be seen as part of the solution, uh, a country that has to be reckoned with, a country that has to be taken as seriously as Saudi Arabia, as Turkey, as UAE, as, as anybody else. Uh, and it feels slighted when uh, I think Kerry said uh, something to the effect of, you know, there, there, there can't be any military cooperation with Iran. Uh, and right after that, you had Khamenei, the supreme leader of Iran, come out with a, a host of statements that were basically his amusement with uh, uh, with the U.S. and what they're doing in Iraq and their their talk about strategy and everything else. So uh, Iran has a has a very complicated game. I mean, obviously they they, they want to get rid of ISIS. Uh, uh, this has been an, sort of a, a challenge to their standing in Iraq. It's also been an opportunity for them to sort of uh, uh, enlarge the cooperation that they have with their Iraqi clients, the Shia militias. Um, so it's sort of been a, uh, a double-edged sword uh, for them. But uh, more than anything, uh, they don't want to see Assad fall. And I think this is, the, this is the part of the American strategy which is very confusing to them. It's like, yeah, we're, we're totally against ISIS here, but we can't be against Assad. You know, and so this they see the American policy as 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 schizophrenic or bipolar rather that you know they're they're fighting the enemies uh, of uh, of the Iraqi state, which are also the enemies of Assad, but at the same time they want to fight Assad and in Tehran uh, they they just they think this is you know muddled logic uh, at at best and against their uh, against their strategic interests at worst and uh, you know bringing up Assad. Someone wrote, a guy, a friend of mine named Mike Barrett um, wrote at One War in the Rocks this week that the United States can't defeat ISIL, stabilize Iraq, uh, and not cooperate with Assad in some fashion. But that's just a bridge too far. Uh, what do you guys think about that? Doug, what do you, what's your immediate reaction to that? He says it's too what, complex to explain. What makes, what makes Syria difficult? By my count, there are five different groups combating in Syria. And in descending order, they are the regime, which is probably still the most powerful military force, particularly the regime and its allies, Hezbollah, other affiliated forces. Uh, Then you have ISIS itself. Then you have al-Nusra, which we referred to earlier, the actual al-Qaeda franchise in the country. Then you have the Islamic Front, whose own people describe themselves as the Syrian Taliban, um, and then we have the Free Syrian Army, which, uh, you know, I don't disagree with Joshua's characterization, but has maybe 5,000 fighters, most of whom are in a very defensive mode, groups of two, 300 defending their own towns. Now, that's not nothing. That's not something we should discourage. But this isn't a group that can then go push out and move, you know, and were, say, the United States Air Force to disrupt ISIS and make them vulnerable to ground attack. That's not a group that can pick up and go reclaim territory from ISIS. So it's incredibly complicated. Backing up a step, what makes the entire situation really complicated is, well, everyone hates ISIS. For almost everyone, I think, except perhaps for Baghdad, ISIS is the number two priority. 
the Saudis clearly want ISIS to go away, but not more than they are concerned about Iran. You know, the Turks want ISIS to go away, but they probably care more about Assad falling. For you know, the Free Syrian Army will combat ISIS, but overthrowing the regime is the, the, the Assad regime is their first priority. So everyone agrees that ISIS is bad, but it's not the first thing. It's not their number one priority of things that they're willing to do. That's a really interesting point. Um, do you do you think it is within the realm of the possible that the United States could ever cooperate with Assad in some fashion to better align the interests of this sort of strange coalition in Iran? I I hope not. ISIS. I hope not. But I I think uh, I think there's a real problem here uh, for everybody, and that is that there has to be some stand-in for Assad, uh, some legitimate alternative to Assad that would effectively be able to speak for the Alawites, the Christians, the urban Sunnis, everybody who the regime has been protecting and who has been supporting the regime. You, you, you simply cannot just let Nusra, the Islamic Front, or anybody else just steamroll into these different regions and neighborhoods and do whatever they're going to do. Um, you're not going to have anything, uh, anything less gross than what ISIS is doing uh, in Iraq and in their own territories. It's going to be just as bad. Um, but you would think that, given where we are, uh, there may be some interest uh, that, that could be secured between Iran, Saudi Arabia, Turkey, etc., to at least for the time being stabilize the war front in Syria, effectively balkanizing it. Uh, allowing uh, certain rebel groups to, to hold their territory, allowing the regime to hold its territory, but preventing Assad's air power from dropping barrel bombs, preventing ISIS from, from uh, moving out of uh, Raqqa or anywhere else. Um, I don't know if that's, if that's feasible, if that would even last, but to me that is, that is at least the first step to, to get all the different outlying powers, Iran, Saudi Arabia, Turkey, the United States and Iraq to agree on some way to combat ISIS both inside Syria and Iraq. I think there are two historical analogies to what's going on in Syria in the 20th century. It's a, uh, it's a civil war in Syria, but it's fought uh, not just by actors inside the country, by actors in the region and even global who have their proxies inside the country. So it reminds me to an extent uh, the war in Bosnia in the 90s and the Spanish civil war in the 30s, and they ended differently. The Spanish Civil War ended with one side uh, sweeping the other side away because the international community basically uh, helped one side as the Germans came in to help the fascists and nobody was there to guard the Republicans and it ended. So that could be one way for the war to end. You could have the regime clean up its opponents because it does get international support and the opposition forces, the Free Syrian Army and others, are not getting the support that they should be. So that's one way it could go. The other way I think we just heard is probably more likely, which is that it could end up, end up like Bosnia in 1995. The sides that fight basically wear themselves off into fighting, and they decide that they're going to reach a modus vivendi. So there is some sort of a front line that's drawn, some international uh, you know, um, uh, uh, formula is agreed upon. Everybody gets their own little share of Syria. The country is patched together, but only in theory. In practice, it basically becomes a few countries that coexist, in which case it would be one that's run by Assad and his supporters, that would include large elements of Alawites and Christians, the, the big cities up ranging from Aleppo to Latakia. There would be uh, an opposition-controlled area, if that is the case, and the third would be an asymmetrical 
situation of Kurds who have their own enclaves having to do having uh, nothing to do with the rest of the country. So I think we're seeing a country that's already decentralized. The question is, you know, does it end up like Spain in the 30s or, or Bosnia in the 90s? I'm thinking back to what Doug just said about ISIS always being the second uh, biggest threat. The one difference I would argue is that they're very easy to hate, right? You know, Assad has at least some nominal allies on his side that can protect him, whether that's the Iranian regime or whether that's the Russians at the Security Council level. Um, ISIS, everybody seems to be able to organize because it's a non-state actor at this point in time, just like the Taliban. You know, people ignored them for a while, but then as soon as 9-11 happened, there was international consensus to knock them out. And the question is, what's happening uh, right now in this town in Washington? Uh, is that what's happening? Because the coalition of the willing or kind of Obama... Uh, going out and kind of declaring war on ISIS, is that going to galvanize it? The, the, the question I think that we're debating is, is that strategy enough? And I think what we've also just heard is that the, the players on the ground, there's not, it's, not, it's not a clear picture. And so, you know, looking at it from, from an outside point of view as well, it's like if we balkanize the region as we're talking about, which theoretically could be, you know, the most likely outcome here, what does that mean for a Kurdish state? You know, you're going to have Kurds of Syria, you're going to have Kurds of Iraq, you're going to have Kurds of other areas that are going to be creating their own individual places. If they get self-determination, just like Scotland's voting today, you know, what's, what does that mean in terms of, you know, more guns. The, yeah, the, exactly. The more, the more articles I read about this comparison between Scotland's independence and the Kurdish independence, it's, you know, it makes it even more complicated for the major regional players. And, you know, you talked at the beginning of, of, of the talk about how this is an interesting group for the Middle East because there's no really strong Arab uh, expert among us, that's actually the way the region has always been, right? When you talk about the Turkish Empire and the Ottoman, Ottoman Empire and the Persian Empire, that, that's always been part of the problem here. You know, how, how can the Arab groups come together? And I think that's part of our coalition problem right now. I want to come back to Syria, because I would have agreed with you a year ago that that's where we were. Who are you agreeing with? I'm sorry, sorry. Okay. With that, when this was just a civil war, but now... You have a superpower that's looking for an ally in Syria against ISIS. And I think this now puts an entirely new dimension on the conflict. And it strikes me there are only two ways that the United States can find an ally in the region, both of which are hard and distasteful. Um, one is to, you know, as the House of Representatives voted on yesterday, to arm and train the Syrian rebels the Free Syrian Army. And again, right now that is a very small group that doesn't have the power to take the fight to ISIS. But American support could change that, could make them the favored actor, the one with all the money, with the one with all the guns. But what that means is our strategy would be de facto to pull off small groups that have aligned themselves with the Islamic Front, with Nusra, even conceivably with ISIS, and have them you know, gang, uh, you know, come and join the Free Syrian Army bandwagon with what they see to be the winners. But if we're talking about you know, groups that we've vetted or that, are, you know, that we can see as being part of a future, this becomes very, very ambiguous very, very quickly. So that seems to be the, the path we're moving down, by the way. The other alternative, equally hard, is to reach some type of accommodation between the regime, and I think we've, you know, perhaps a post-Assad, but no, not post-Alawite regime, I think Ryan Crocker has written about this, that comes into some type of negotiations with the Free Syrian Army, or some analog thereof, and gets some type of negotiated settlement with lots of international support uh, to move forward. This could then also provide a proxy force. 
Each of these is hard, each of these is fraught, each of these has a multitude of downsides. Uh, but those strike me as really the only two ways that we can try to move forward and find a proxy in Syria that can take the fight to ISIS. And we've been very, very clear that we don't want to do it ourselves. It, it just seems to me that looking at it from a U.S. perspective, uh, a few things. One, from a U.S. perspective, Nusra is as problematic as ISIS um, for the threat it poses to the homeland, not for the threat it poses to regional destabilization yet. Although, if Nusra had toppled Assad, they'd definitely be wanting to do a lot of the same things that ISIS is doing right now. I mean, you just read what, when Al-Qaeda in Iraq was still Al-Qaeda, of what their, their plans and ambitions for Jordan uh, and for other neighboring states. Um, so the, the real problem from a U.S. perspective is the character of the Sunni Arab opposition. Uh, Assad is not as horrific as he is. The problem, the main problem, he is a problem, but he's not the main problem from the U.S. perspective. So the, the problem is how do you change the character and the makeup of the armed Sunni Arab opposition? And by slowly training a bunch of guys in Saudi Arabia and wherever else we're going to train them, uh, how do you turn a force of 5,000 into a force of 40,000 that can then take on ISIS and is willing to turn on Nusra, who the FSA is sometimes cooperating with? No, uh, that, it just seems impossible to I me. I think there's an inherent risk in the U.S. strategy of just targeting ISIS. It could end up putting much of Syria under Assad's control again, primarily because if the strategy is targeting ISIS, and I think the U.S. when it builds alliances, you know, will contain and ultimately uh, debilitate ISIS and perhaps even defeat it. But what does that mean for the battlefront, battlefield? That means Assad no more has ISIS to contend with, and he can focus all his energy on Nusra and FSA and other groups. And this is exactly what he's doing right now. I think as the U.S. starts to strike. ISIS targets inside Syria and works against it with allies, the Kurds, and in the long term, the Turks and others. Uh, the risk of not supporting the opposition at the same time while doing that is basically letting the opposition fall into the hands of Assad. And uh, there were talks, there was talk about a while ago about how Assad is getting ready to take over Aleppo, which is the last opposition stronghold. That would be if the effective end of the opposition, with the exception of the countryside, they're holding the Idlib province right across from Turkey. So. The uh, U.S. strategy has to be, that's not the case right now, I think it has to be double-pronged. It has to target ISIS, but it also has to bolster up the opposition so it does not fall prey into Assad's hand. I think Assad has played it very smart from the beginning. He's never targeted ISIS. He did not create ISIS, but he let it grow, knowing that you know this is a group that's ultimately going to be taken care of by others, i.e. the United States. It's not his problem, it's somebody else's problem. His problem is the other elements of the opposition that does not include ISIS. So, Short of targeting those groups, I think a strategy that just goes after ISIS might enable Assad to take over, you know, not the entire country, but large parts of it back from the opposition. Well, I think also because he controls a state, it also makes it a different scenario altogether, where he is kind of the least of the worst evils right now. And I think one of the most awkward situations now is you have countries like Turkey that went so far on the one side of saying, we can't even deal with this regime, they have to go. And by doing that, you put yourself in a situation where, even as the situation has gotten worse and you have threats like ISIS and others there, uh, you know, I, I think the U.S. does have some flexibility in this. The trouble is every step we go down the path further here in terms of arming the, 
the Free Syrian Army or the moderates, you know, if they lose, that's a pretty big, I mean, this is a little bit like Vietnam all over again, where we, we basically pick a fight that our allies can't win, therefore we, if we're not going to put boots on the ground, what does that leave us with? And, you know, this then allows Iran to score a victory, Hezbollah to score a victory. A lot of our allies in the region, including Israel, would be very unhappy with that outside. Let's, um, let's turn to the Kurds for a second, because I think this is one of the most interesting parts of the conflict, and one that all of you will have something interesting to say about. Um, I'm going to focus on the Turkey aspect and just ask a few questions there. This is All this is happening at the same time that Turkey is trying to come to this historic accommodation with the PKK. Uh, slowly. Uh, and Ajalan's in prison and they're trying to advance negotiations. Who knows where they stand? At the same time you have the PKK moving into Iraq and, and reinforcing Kurdish forces there and fighting, also fighting in Syria. Um, and it looks to me like an accommodation from their point of view becomes less and less attractive the more safe areas they have outside of Turkey that Turkey can't access at the moment. But something I also like Afshan to talk a bit about from the Iranian perspective Iranian perspective, because the Kurds and the Iranians the Kurds in Iraq and the Iranians are actually a lot closer than get than get discussed. And I'd just like to hear that angle as well. Do you want to start with the Iran angle or you Yeah, want... but, but we'll, let's just go around. We'll start with you. Okay. Uh well, yeah, I mean, for Iran, it's, uh, like everybody else, it's, it's, it's complicated. Uh, Iran has... The Iran, Middle East is never yeah. complicated. I reject that notion. Iran has long-standing uh, uh, um, ties with, with, with both of the major factions in Iraqi Kurdistan, uh, which they uh, both supported uh, against Saddam Hussein uh, uh, previously, even before the Islamic Revolution, uh, and after the Islamic Revolution during the Iran-Iraq War, uh, they fought alongside uh, 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 both Kurdish parties, and and the Kurds fought them, fought the Iranians from time to time as well, in support of Kurdish separatists or uh, pro-autonomy uh, Kurds uh, in uh, Iran's uh, western mountains. Um, so, Iran on the one hand is is good friends with Talibani and Barzani. On the other hand, they are terrified of their own Kurds getting any sort of. Uh, uh, stronger pretensions of wanting autonomy or or or, or um, uh, independence. Uh, they've had a 40-year insurgency that uh, is has been sort of on and off, uh, being fought within the uh, Iranian Kurdistan with with basically different Marxist uh, uh, Kurdish groups uh, that continues to this day. Uh, there's now sort of been. Uh, reports of one kind or another of of ISIS in Kurdistan uh, of uh, they could be Kurdish Salafis they could be Ansara Islam uh, the the Kurdish Salafi group uh, they could actually be ISIS or they could be none of those things uh, but they are being labeled as that uh, in the Iranian press yeah, only in the local press it's not really national uh, so Iran also fears uh, a growing. Uh, sort of Salafi or what they would call Wahhabi or Takfiri uh, current sort of growing within its Sunni areas, not just the Kurdish areas, but also Baluchistan and uh, Turkmen uh, areas uh, in the northeast. So Iran does not want to see an independent Kurdish state, doesn't want to see uh, um, uh, sort of uh, Kurdistan grow any more than it is. On the other hand, it appreciates a strong Kurdistan, it appreciates the Kurdish voice, it appreciates the stability that, that the Kurds uh, bring in Iraq, and it also appreciates that the Kurds in Iraq have not messed around in Iran uh, for the most part, and so they feel like they have a good, strong working relationship. 
but I think uh, they were the uh, Iran's leaders were one of the first to sort of uh, vocally object uh, uh, when uh, the referendum in Iraqi Kurdistan was mentioned um, as a, a very bad idea. Oh, I didn't know that. That's yeah, they they were very vocal against it from the very beginning. Um, more so than I thought they would be. I mean, they, they're, they're putting their cards on the table pretty clearly. Uh, so they don't want to see that happen. And I think, you know, one of the interesting sort of uh, microcosms of, of this playing out on the battlefield in Iraq is when uh, the, the last battle for Amr Lee, which was uh, a Turkmen Shia uh, village in Iraq, uh, which was being fought by the Peshmerga in the north and the Shia militias in the south, and supported by uh, U.S. airstrikes uh, from above, uh, the Shia militias ultimately entered Amrli, and once they did, they prevented the Peshmerga from coming in there, uh, uh, literally stopping them, saying, there are no Peshmerga allowed, the Kurds are not allowed in here. And the Kurds were reported saying, I think this was a New York Times article, was saying, like, this is part of, this is part of Kurdish territory. This is, this is a Kurdish, you know, area. This is our homeland. You know, we should be able to be in there. So... You're already seeing sort of, uh, as the battle's being played out, you're already seeing these little tiny areas of, of contestation that um, Iran is affecting through their clients, uh, but also sort of coming into uh, problems with the Kurds, who apparently Iranian artillery was, was supporting the Kurds as well. So it's, it's, it's a complicated, complicated... Yeah, I mean, j- just to add to that, I mean, what's interesting about this is the realities on the ground of kind of the... the the KRG taking over Kirkuk, something they couldn't do kind of from the kind of the political compromise point of it, but from the military reality on the ground, they're able to do that. And you were asking about the Turkish angle here. I think Turkey has more to lose and gain in terms of the Kurdish question than anybody else, just given sheer numbers. Um, you know, the, the, the presidential election that, that saw Prime Minister Erdogan become president, the big surprise there was actually the Kurdish candidate who did really well. And so now we're all gearing up in terms of in Turkey for the next parliamentary election. And when you look at the way that the current ruling party has kind of been able to, in the past, count on Kurdish votes in that southeastern part of Turkey. Now they can't in some ways because you've got a stronger uh, group that's able to work from a political point of view. You have the kind of the PKK Ojalan angle. And what's fascinating about this is when you look at the, the fight for uh, the kind of the, 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 the fight there in the Sinjar province, etc., there are all these reports, I think in the New York Times also, that the PKK was actually coordinating with the Peshmerga, which is kind of a nightmare scenario for Turkey in some ways, yeah. a kind of having this th- th- come together, because Barzani and the Kurds of KRG have become kind of Erdogan and Turkey's closest friend in some ways. It allows him to kind of leapfrog the Kurds of Turkey and the kind of the problems that have always existed, economic disparities, etc., which this government, AKP under Erdogan, has done more than any other Turkish government in the past to try to resolve, but yet it doesn't seem to be enough. And so if you have this regional slash international uh, kind of change of dynamics with the Kurds, it's going to directly affect the domestic uh, livelihood and also the domestic viability uh, of the Turkish state and the question of what it means to be Turkish, which I'm sure Sonar is kind of wrote the book on this, is, is something you have to think about in terms of what does it mean for the Turks and the Turkish Republic moving forward. Look, I think the also sort of take the opportunity to plug your book. Sorry, uh, no. <laughs> <laughs> the, the rise of Turkey. Um, it's very good. It is. Well, thank you. Uh, this, <laughs> this this is my third book, and I wrote it with great interest to look at Turkey's economic transformation, but. Uh, one of the issues I looked at in my book was the Kurdish issue, and I think the Arab Spring has shifted um, so much of the Middle East as we know it. Uh, some enemies have become even more enemies in the better sense. Some former friends have become enemies. 
and in some cases some enemies have become friends and this is the case of Turks and the Kurds. If we had this conversation five years ago the questions would be why the Turks and Kurds hate each other? Is Turkey going to invade Iraqi Kurdistan? Now the question is if Iraqi Kurdistan declares independence will the Turks take them? The answer is yes. Uh, we have seen in the past five years a serious amount of economic rapprochement between Turkey and Iraqi Kurds. Basically Turkey wants to buy their oil and gas to decrease its dependency on Russian and Iranian oil and gas and the Iraqi Kurds are happy, happy to sell it to Turkey because they don't want to deal with Baghdad. This is going to be the, uh, the base of their financial autonomy and independence if they can uh, directly sell their oil. That economic rapprochement was strengthened I think when the AKP reached out to Barzani and vice versa and Erdogan and Barzani now see eye to eye on, on the Kurdish issue in the region. It would have stayed there had the had ISIS not emerged in the region. I think the threat of ISIS is is not just big for everybody, but it's especially uh, serious for the Kurds. Uh, the Kurdish region was almost overrun by ISIS. They came about 20 miles distance of Erbil, uh, thanks to the United States that uh, that advance was stopped. So the Kurds know it's something very simple, and I think this is also for the Syrian Kurds. They have all these enclaves, they have oil, but guess what? ISIS can overrun them, and if not for the yeah, the, the storied. Peshmerga, who right. are supposed to be the great warriors. That, so you know, I think increasingly they're finding days. out that they are sandwiched between the ISIS to the south and, and Turkey to the north, and guess what? They're going to need Turkey for the foreseeable future. And Turkey, likewise, I think, sees these Kurdish enclaves as its necessary cordon sanitaire. Uh, it will not allow them run get run over by ISIS because they defend Turkey from ISIS advances. If not for the Kurdish zones in Syria and Iraq, Turkey would border ISIS for 800 miles. Thanks to them, it only borders ISIS for 100 miles, and I think the Turks appreciate that. So you're going to see a strong security relationship. I think this is one takeaway uh, of the, uh, the post-ISIS Arab Spring Middle East, that you're going to have a pretty solidified Turkish-Kurdish uh, relationship. Another element of it is, as the region's Kurds gravitate towards Turkey, Syrian Kurds and Iraqi Kurds for economic and security reasons, Ironically, the Turkish Kurds want to move away from Ankara. Yeah. So the Iraqi Kurds want to be closer to Ankara, and the Turkish Kurds want to be away from it. So there's going to be two countervailing trends in the region. And to what extent Erdogan can manage them uh, as AKP runs for elections next year? He does need Kurdish support, so he has to be nice to them. But at the same time, he does want to consolidate power, and he also wants to get along with Iraqi Kurds. And so he will have to do something on the Kurdish issue inside the country as well. Let me just add one thing to what Sonar said. I agree with the, the broader analysis, but the KRG representatives have been here in D.C. over the last couple of days, and they've been very vocal in how angry they are with Turkey. And so while the, the broader trend of this very close relationship between Barzani and Erdogan has been there, it seems to me that they're very upset at Turkey for not taking a stronger line publicly about ISIS. And they seem to be saying, you know, hiding behind the hostage situation is no excuse, and Turkey needs to step up. And so watching that relationship will be very important, because obviously Turkey is the largest investor in KRG, and as Sonar just laid out, they, they have a they have a very long vested interest in each other's viability as, as kind of players in the region. But So I think it's going to be important to watch what happens as a result of this. I think the hostage issue is important. It will obviously temper Turkey's commitment to the anti-ISIS alliance formed by the U.S., uh, Erdogan and the, all the Turks want to save their hostages before they do anything against ISIS and they know that if Turkey commits to this coalition and advertises it publicly the hostages will be executed so they're delaying their their public commitment to the coalition and ISIS knows this as well so which suggests that ISIS is probably not going to release these hostages so unfortunately I think they are therefore in 
probably a semi-permanent limbo between freedom and execution. But there is a point of no return for the Turks, even with this limbo. If uh, there are ISIS attacks against Turkey, or ISIS threatens to overrun Kurdish enclaves, I think Turkey will be very aggressive against ISIS, and that could even invite an air campaign, and that could see a very frontal Turkish reaction to this group. The Kurdish situation in northern Iraq was really, really, really complicated before ISIS came along, and now even more exponentially so. So, just to start, you have to admire the courage of northern Iraq for a couple of things. I mean, what they've done in the north economically has been truly impressive, and the way that they've been able to bury the hatchet among themselves. I mean, the civil war between the KDP and the PUK was a deeply destructive one, and they've been really quite admirable in the way that they've buried the hatchet post-1996 and worked together to really build something in northern Kurdistan. Further, um, in a region, as we were discussing with Syria, where moderate Sunnis seem to be hard to find, among the Kurds, they're not. You know, the, there are Islamist parties among the Kurds, but they, they register in single digits when they go to yeah. the polls. They're, they're really a, a minority group among the Kurds. So these are admirable things. On the other hand, this, this whole post-ISIS situation has been a very mixed blessing for the Kurds. On the one hand, in the immediate aftermath of the ISIS invasion of Muslim Kirkuk, uh, I'm sorry, of uh, Tikrit, you know, the Kurds quite uh, you know famously moved down, grabbed Kirkuk and these other regions, um, saying plausibly, though perhaps not, that they just took positions that had been abandoned by the Iraqi army, but nonetheless settled this peacefully, but nonetheless by force of arms, force of arms that weren't fired took these regions and really seemed to have established a geographic greater Kurdistan. Right. Then, you know, weeks later, um, as we said, the you know ISIS then does a left hook and invades Kurdistan and gets somewhere between 15 to 20 miles towards Erbil. I don't think we've yet fully absorbed what that means. You know, Kurdistan used to be the other Iraq. That was their brand. Um, now it's just Iraq. Yeah, they you know Kurdistan is now one of the front lines for the fight with ISIS, which, and, which they which never happened at the height of never, the U.S. war there. Height of the U.S. No war, you know, Al Qaeda in Iraq never pushed into Kurdistan. It was always peaceful. I think there was maybe one car bomb in like the entire you know seven or eight year period of the American involvement in the uh, in the Iraq war. <laughs> You know, Erbil and the rest of Kurdistan were almost totally isolated from that. It really was this little Switzerland in the mountains away from the chaos of the rest of Iraq. Now they're part of the chaos of the rest of Iraq. And I don't think either they or the rest of the world have fully absorbed what that means. That for as long as there is a fight with ISIS, and I don't think any of us think this is going to be less than 18 months, and conceivably could be much, much, much longer than that, um, they're a battleground for this fight. And I don't think we've fully absorbed yet what that means for their aspirations for oil production. And I think all these blocks that you know, Exxon famously uh, invested in around Kirkuk, I think that oil stays in the ground for the foreseeable future. Um, obviously, you know, Exxon has the pockets to ride that out for 10 years, but other people don't. Um, so there's there are so many shifting things in... Kurdistan, Iraqi Kurdistan, I think it's really hard to see where it lands. 
you know, is this a, a net positive for Kurdistan? Well, that's plausible. Is this a net negative for Kurdistan? I think that's also, you know, very much in the realm of possibility. So we have yet to figure out what all this means, um, you know, what the relative strength of the parties are. You know, one of the, you know, still disturbing things about Kurdistan is the two primary parties really still are family dynasties. And the PUK's fortunes right now are waning because Jalal Talabani is, you know, severely incapacitated, um, you know, not available, not available to perform the role that he has performed over the last year. It's part of the reasons I think that Iraqi Kurdistan punched way above their weight was the gravitas that Jalal Talabani brought to any meeting of Iraqi figures. More than anyone else, he could tell everyone. You know, Maliki, the new Jafis, Mutlak, Alawi, you know, sit down at the table and, you know, talk to each other. You know, now children, stop this. Um, he had the gravitas to do that. Um, Barzani, for a host of reasons, doesn't have that. You know, Kubad Talibani is very talented, but he's very young in a society that values age. So it's going to be a, a long time before the PUK regains that status. Um, in the meantime, you know, Goran is very much attacking the KDP for the, you know, family network that the Barzanis have, the the amount of power that the, the family has. We had a Barzani son who was commanding the Peshmerga out at Mosul. Um, so this is all still just very much in flux. So many things moving, so many positive trends, so many negative trends. Um, it's hard to, to see where this all lands. And my final question to our tur to Turkish experts is, to me, this is the, the biggest question, certainly for the future of Iraq and maybe for the larger region is, and you've already answered this, but I want to hear from Joshua, uh, is Turkey really serious about empowering an independent Iraqi Kurdistan? Or... Have they just been having fun poking Baghdad and Maliki specifically, and Erdogan specifically poking Maliki specifically, because those two hate each other, in the eye for the last three, four, eight years, um, because he can, but at the end of the day, they're going to pull the rug out from the Iraqi Kurds, because at the end of the day, Turkey doesn't want an Iraqi Kurdistan. Or are they really serious? Uh, I'm going to... I know Josh has to leave right after he answers this question, yeah, because he has to go teach after he after enjoying a nice old fashioned and talking. Thanks for bringing that up. Okay, I'll <laughs> now. All my students now know. Yeah. So, well, Josh, answer that question. Um, so, I don't actually think my answer is, is any different. I think they are serious about it. I think that there was a real change that happened. You know, something that we would not have expected ten years ago. You know, the Turks were very clear that the red line, much like the Iranians, was a independent uh, Kurdish state. I think they basically are happy with a with, with a Kurdish entity um, that goes a little bit short of sovereignty because I think sovereignty creates some problems for them. Mm -hmm. um, but I think it really depends on the character of that Kurdish state. And I think as it's currently constituted, the KRG fits Turkish interests very nicely, and they will take that any day over whatever constellation in Baghdad because I think they learn the hard way that having the Turkmen as their allies in Iraq or even trying to compete with the Sunni affection with the other Gulf states 
doesn't play to Turkey's strength. But when it comes to the Kurds and given the long border, given the economic, uh, you know, kind of reliance either side, I think Turkey is serious about this. And I think that that's actually one of the axes that the U.S., from a U.S. policy point of view, should be looking at more seriously without kind of Turkey and, and Kurdistan working more closely together, without Turkish support of Erbil. I can't see a scenario in which this, the, kind of the state of Iraq is able to exist in any kind of constellation that we've seen up until this point in time. And Josh wrote a report on this for the Center for National Policy with our friend Eli Sugarman. Now, and you're very good at this advertising. <laughs> I really appreciate it. I, I Thank like you for having me. Everyone plugs. So Josh is going to walk out. While Josh is walking out, thanks for doing this, Josh. Go Stand teach. Me. Go shape young minds. <laughs> it's uh, a scary thought, isn't it? Here we are at the Jefferson Hotel Quill Bar. Let's, we all are going to talk, talk about what we're, what we're drinking. Not all of us are drinking, but... Uh, <laughs> Most of us are. So, Doug, what what kind of beer? Bye, Josh. Thank you. Uh, tonight was a, a couple of uh, Dogfish IPAs. Uh, I'm I'm having a Jameson. Pretty pretty standard for me. Uh, so I'm having a Stella Artois beer. And uh, tonic and lime. Shots are not. Why why aren't you drinking? Because so, someone so so someone can give us a sober perspective. Someone can give us a sober perspective. That's right. So, uh, I also want to look at the issue of Syrian Kurds. We haven't touched them yet. Um, we've yes, looked at Iranian, Turkish, Iraqi Kurds. The smallest of the four Kurdish communities are only about a million and a half, maybe two million people. And they are divided into three enclaves. So unlike the other Kurds in the region, they don't have the benefit or the, uh, the, the advantage of living in one single area. So they don't live in contiguous zones. So they are, they are hard-pressed and they're surrounded by ICS enclaves. And, They've been uh, pretty operationally successful. Very successful so, uh, because... They, they probably killed more ISIS than anyone else. They have the PKK, which is a, you know, very uh, um, strong among Turkish Kurds, has an even stronger presence among Syrian Kurds. And that explains why Syrian Kurds have been really defined against ISIS, because the PKK is a war-hardened organization. Its members have been fighting in the mountains some since the 70s and 80s, and they really are uh, crafty in the, in the art of uh, war-making. And and I think uh, this is one reason why uh, the PKK, its Syrian affiliate, PYD, has been the only group that has been able to defeat ISIS on the battlefront. Though lately ISIS has made pushes against even PKK, PYD-controlled enclaves, the central one called Kobani. Here is a challenge for the Syrian Kurds. They can either replicate the Iraqi Kurdish model, become good friends with Turkey, and uh, secure Turkey's support and survival, or they can decide to fight ISIS on their own. And I think increasingly, ISIS is going to present them with this challenge because it does want to consolidate in northeastern Syria. That includes at least two of these Kurdish enclaves that's going to fall under its rule. Uh, then <clears throat> PYD, PKK, it's a socialist group. Its ideology is probably the opposite of what ISIS represents. In fact, I would say of all the Syrian opposition groups, if you put them on a spectrum, the two that could never coexist would be PKK, PYD, and ISIS. They're, they're so far apart from each other in terms of what they stand for, their values. Uh, ISIS persecutes women. The PKK has women in its ranks who fight. It's that simple. Yeah, so, they're pretty badass. So when it comes to that, I think the group has to make a decision. They're, 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 they're war-hardened fighters, but you know what? They're no match in the long term for ISIS's war machine. This group has an actual effective army. So I think the choice is the Syrian Kurds. They can go for the Turk Iraqi Kurdish model, in which case I think Turkey would be very happy to take their hand uh, if they would moderate and make peace with Turkey. We're not there yet, and the jury's still out. Right. And that's and there are whispers now that we've seen in the papers of possible airstrikes being planned in Syria, and it's 
presumably one of the things that President Obama was briefed on when he was down in CENTCOM. Um, so I'd like to just, before, we're going to wrap up in a minute, um, but final thoughts from everybody. Uh, what should our listeners be taking, taking home with them? Uh, so, I mean, you want to start? Yeah, I'll, I'll jump in. Look, I think the, the latest developments have shown to us that an ISIS strategy has to target this group, not just in Iraq, but in Syria. Uh, going after its, its assets, its, its activities, its presence in just one country makes no sense whatsoever. It's similar to targeting the, the Taliban on the Pakistan side of the Afghan border. Just because there's a political border doesn't mean that border exists for that group. ISIS controls both sides of the Iraqi-Syrian desert. It has as significant presence on one side as on the other. And going after the just one area basically allows it to go into the other country. And I think that's why I'm happy to see it, an ISIS strategy that, that has emerged that the president is after, which basically goes after this group's presence in both places, Iraq and Syria. And this strategy also has to have a leg of targeting the Assad regime and bolstering the opposition. Otherwise, the United States may contain ISIS, but it might also deliver Syria into the hands of Assad. Great. Uh, Afshan had some sober advice. Well, uh, not to be a cynic, I, I think ISIS is going to be around for, for quite a long time. I, I, I don't think it's... I think we can push back ISIS. Uh, I think we can certainly stop ISIS from from uh, moving forward, uh, but I think destroying ISIS is, is, is not going to happen. Um, but I think containing ISIS is possible, and I think that's, that's ultimately where the strategy, at least the ISIS part of the strategy, uh, is going to... Secretary Kerry insists there is no contained strategy. Yeah, I mean, no, I know. We don't, we, we don't contain Iran either, right. but I mean, this is, you know, we're, we're, we're often forced down these roads. Um, but I, I think that's ultimately... So you're uh, saying that political leaders don't mean what they say in public? That's shocking. No, you said that. <laughs> um, but uh, that, that's what I'm, I'm happy to see ISIS be destroyed. I, I'd be happy to be wrong about this. But I, I anticipate that, that they won't be, uh, at least not in the next uh, five years or so. I think they have, they have roots that we don't appreciate. Uh, I think they have uh, a, a genuine popular uh, support. Um, uh, maybe not active fighters, but I think that I think there's a lot more support for them in the Arab world than 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 uh, uh, than uh, most states are, are willing to acknowledge. Um, and I think, frankly, the, the the abscess or the the cancer of of the civil war in in Syria is is going to continue fueling that. And I, I absolutely agree with the the previous comments that uh, anything any Iraq focused strategy has to be rooted in in Syria. There has to be some attempt to at least to at least quiet the civil war uh, in Syria. Um, I, I don't think there's an easy solution to the war, and unfortunately for Syrians uh, themselves, I don't think that they will be the ones deciding how the war stops. I think it'll be uh, everybody else uh, surrounding that country. Seems like outsiders messed up their war for them. Yeah, I mean, as with all wars, yeah. uh, you know, there's there's really no such thing as uh, you know a discrete uh, national conflict anymore. So, yeah. and more, especially in the hundred hundredth anniversary of World War One, yeah. it's important to remember that. Yeah, it's important to avoid uh, the third one. So, uh, but you know, as uh, as Ukraine has shown, there is possibilities to to at least uh, slow down conflicts. Uh, people can compromise at least uh, at the political level and. I think that's going to be what it takes, but I think uh, I think the U.S. 
uh, is in the uncomfortable position to accepting uh, a permanent Iranian position or a continuing Iranian position in Syria, I think Saudi Arabia has to uh, accept that too. I think Turkey has to accept that. Um, but I think Iran needs to accept uh, that uh, business as usual just can't, can't go forward. I think Iran uh, faces serious risks uh, by all of this blowing up in their face. Um, and uh, I don't think the Iranians appreciate it yet. I want to back out a little, Seth. And as I've talked about a few times, I think it's really easy to blame this administration for, you know, not you know, being in, out in front on a Middle East policy, but I think this goes way, way back. If I, I think our Middle East policy is still frozen by some events that happened in my childhood, you know, the 1967 and 73 Israeli wars, um, the 1973 oil shocks, and the 1979 seizure of the American embassy in Iran with perhaps a slight update for the Beirut bombings in 1983. And there have been several iterations in the Middle East since then, um, just to name, you know, to name three that we're not thinking about, I don't think. Um, you know, America is more and more gaining energy independence, now still an integrated oil market, but nonetheless, the fact is now that the U.S. Navy in the Persian Gulf is less defending oil tankers that are going to come out and do a right turn to Houston and more doing ones that are going to come out and do a left turn to China and Japan. We haven't fully absorbed that yet. Um, second is the, the youth bulge in the region. We've not thought about what this means, and this is a double-edged sword. If harnessed, this could be a real engine for economic growth and transformation in the region. Um, if left to fester, this is a recruiting pool from which Al-Qaeda and ISIS and similar extremist groups will draw for the foreseeable future. And finally, we're just, we seem unable to deal with the fact that there are a lot of really repressive, almost universally authoritarian repressive regimes in the region. I mean, the, the best, most decent regimes in the region Iraq, Jordan, Lebanon, Tunisia are still nothing to write home about. Um, and until we're willing to acknowledge that under these authoritarian regimes, these conditions that were, you know, ec lack of economic empowerment, embrace of extremism, um, lack of acknowledgement of women's rights are, are likely to continue. Um, there are root causes to... ISIS, extremism, uh, these other pathologies that we're dealing with that, that simply aren't going to happen. Now, these things don't get fixed overnight, and this doesn't obviate the need for a military strategy against ISIS now, but we need to understand we're, we're kind of stopping the bleeding on the wound when there's a cancer underneath uh, that has to be fixed in the long term. Well, on that optimistic note, <laughs> yeah. uh, we're going to call, call it. I, I can't... I was going to say something, but that's just the best... Uh, <laughs> image that I think we can end on. Why? So, or, or the worst. Or the worst. Thank so uh, thanks for listening, and uh, thank you all for joining me and the Warm Rocks audience today. You're welcome.